Today we're continuing our series through the um, seven churches in the book of Revelation. That is Jesus talking to the church. He is addressing his church. And for those of you, maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian and you're wondering, is this message relevant to me? I say absolutely. Because you know what? In this series, Jesus is calling his church back to himself. He's calling his church to a true, pure Christianity. If you've ever wanted to find out what Christianity is meant to look like or really looks like, this series is for you. So I welcome you here today, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Well, today we're in the church of Pergamum. And I've got to be honest with you, I'm coming to the sermon today with some fear and trepidation because um, this message is not an easy one to preach, and I don't think it's going to be an easy one to hear. But you know what? I'm so encouraged by this, that this message that Jesus um, gave to the ancient church 2,000 years ago is still relevant to us today. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to his church. And so I am so excited to be able to bring you the message today. I believe it's going to speak to us and edify us and build his church. So if you're ready, come on, let's read from Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols. That means that they were participating in idol worship and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's join in prayer. Father, this is your beautiful message to your church. And what a privilege and honor it is to be able to come together to hear you speaking to us. Lord, I pray that we will have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to your church. And I pray that we have a humble heart to be able to receive it and to respond to it. Oh Lord, I pray that you guide the words that come out of my mouth. May they be words of truth and from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, you can divide this letter into essentially three parts. Comfort, concern, and a challenge. Jesus begins by comforting his church, by recognizing the very difficult position they are in. In verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Here's the thing about the city of Pergamum, where this church is. It is considered by ancient historians one of the most beautiful cities in the region. One said that it is the most famous city in Asia. Let's put it this way. If you were living in the first century, this city would be on your bucket list. It's one of those cities that everyone wanted to visit. It's kind of like Japan. Like everyone and their mother wants to go to Japan, right? And understandably, I've been there myself. It is an awesome city to visit. Great food, so many places to visit, things to do, things to see, and the people are so polite and nice, right? It's an awesome place to visit. Everyone wants to go there. That's the city of Pergamum. Everyone wanted to go there. And when you entered the city, right, it, there would be so much stuff to do. Let me give you a picture, just a really quick picture of what the city looked like, right? It was built on a mountainside. So when you looked um, around you as you entered the city, you would see the open plain. You would just see the plains stretch out before you because you're standing a thousand feet above the rest of the area. Okay, that's like standing on the Empire State Building. Right, and just looking out over the city, all right? That's your view. Then when you look at the city, right, built on this mountainside, there is so much stuff to do. You just see a maze of buildings, and it is beautiful. It glistens white. In the, uh, in the near distance there, you see one of the biggest libraries in the world. There's also a 10,000-seat stadium, auditorium, where there's arts and entertainment there, if you're interested in that. There's also the famous Esclepion. That's pretty much a world-class hospital back in the day, right? People will come from all over the region to visit this hospital to find healing. Not only did they practice, you know, medicine, but they also, there was this rumor that they also conducted magic there, that you could magically be healed by snakes somehow, right? And people will come from all over to visit this place. In addition, if you were religious, and most people back then were, there were so many temples around you. No matter what god you worship or gods you worship, you would find a temple for you. But there was one temple that you definitely needed to visit before you left Pergamum, and that was the Trajan Temple that was dedicated to the Greek god Zeus. So you can get an idea that this is an awesome place to visit. But if you were a Christian, you would not want to live there. You would not want to live there because it was dangerous to be a Christian there. If you were there in the first century, you would have known this name Antipas because this Christian brother would have been recently killed for their faith. Tradition tells us that Antipas was boiled alive, literally cooked to death, okay? Not fun. And this is where this church is. And God is saying to his church, where I know where you dwell. This is where Satan holds dominion and has great influence over the people and over the city. And that's where you live. I understand. I understand what a difficult position you are in. And that's so comforting. That's so comforting to them because he, God is saying that, look, I understand. I'm well aware of the struggles and the, and the heat you're going through right now. And this will come to us today. Because see, you know what? God knows where you are. 
God knows where you dwell. God understands what you have gone through. Isn't that comforting? God understands. He's well aware of it. For some of you, he knows that it has not been easy to be a Christian in your family. Now, for some of you, you have undergone rejection, bullying, um, your family has ignored you. Pretty much they've disowned you from their family because you became a Christian. And God is saying, I know. I understand. And, I, I, and the fact that you, are, you have not denied my faith, that you're still with me, you still go, I believe in Jesus. No matter what I've gone through, he says, well done. Well done, my child. Now, he knows that some of, for some of you, it has been, not been easy to be a Christian in your workplace. For whatever reason, your workplace does not value your integrity. They do not value your Christian values of love in that workplace. And in fact, your career has been set back because of your Christian faith. God's saying, I know. I understand. I'm with you. You know, for some of you, this COVID-19 season, this entire COVID-19 season has not been easy for you and your family. Financially, maybe health-wise, maybe because of the screaming children that are in your house, you know, whatever it is that you've gone through, you know, it's not been easy. And maybe you have some doubts about God. Maybe you have some questions for Him that, you know what, are you really good, God? Are you, are you, do you still love me? Are you still gracious and compassionate to me? And God's saying, you know what? I understand. I get it. I get it. And the fact that you are still a Christian, the fact that you still hold fast to my name, despite, in spite of your doubts and your fears and your questions, he applauds you. He says, well done, my child. And the church of Pergamum, he's saying, well done. But, but, something's off in this church of Pergamum. Something is off. Even though they are faithful, even though they have not denied him, right? There's something off with their faith. In verse 14 to 15, we hear Jesus' loving concern for the church. And as we go through these verses, I want you to understand that this is God the Father pleading with his children. He loves them. He wants the best for them. And this concern is out of Love, not out of hate, not because he, he, he wants the worst for them, not because he wants them to suffer and feel bad about themselves. No. Jesus wants them to have life and life to the full in him. And that's why he is saying to them this, verse 14 to 15, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. See, though the church in Pergamon was holding on to God, right, they still professed their faith in Christ, there were some there, some there, who were holding to some other stuff as well. And two things I mentioned in this passage, one, the teaching of Balaam, and two, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what is it referring to here? Well, the teaching of Balaam. We first meet the prophet Balaam in the book of Numbers chapter 20. Two, and I'm just going to summarize the story there because it goes on for three chapters, okay? So, in short, um, the story goes that the people of Israel were encamped in this region of Moab. 
And the king of Moab, called Balak, was afraid of the Israelites. So they would come and fight against him and conquer him. So what he did was he hired this prophet called Balaam to come and curse the nation of Israel. And he offered him a large sum of money. Balaam couldn't resist this offer. So he went and tried to curse Israel. But every time he went to curse Israel, blessings would flow out, right? Every time he went to curse, blessings would flow out. This happened three times, okay? Until Balak got so fed up with this, Because, you know what, he hired Balaam to curse Israel. Now, they're more blessed than they were before, right? So he was fed up. He's like, deal's off. Now, we learn that before they leave one another, right, Balaam wanted the money. He still wanted the money. So he devised a plan. We learn this in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, right? That he devised a plan. Okay, Balak, I may not be able to directly curse Israel, but there is a way that they can bring a curse and a punishment from their God upon themselves. Here's what you do. Send your most beautiful Moabite women among Israel. The men will not be able to help themselves. They'll fall so hard for the women there that they'll become like putty in their hands, right? They can, they'll do anything they want. You want them to worship other foreign gods, which is what I recommend you get them to do, they will do it. Now, I understand, I know what you're thinking. This plan is not going to work. The men are not that stupid. Well, in chapter 25, we learned that the plan goes off perfectly, right? The men fall so hard for the women of Moab that they are putty in their hands, right? They do whatever they want. They have such intimate relationships with these women that they also worship their gods. And God is not happy. See, what was happening here was that Israel was mixing not only their lives, but their faith with the nations around them, with the society around them. And God is saying that in the church of Pergamum, there are some that are doing that as well. There are some in the church in Pergamum that are mixing their faith with the society and with the culture around them. And what is happening is that it's not just altering their beliefs, it's altering their behavior. Right? It's affecting their worship. It's affecting their faith. And so what is happening is that some are worshiping other gods and they're practicing sexual immorality, promiscuity, or maybe it might be temple prostitution. But whatever it is, they're not living according to the ways of God. The lines between them and the society around them are blurred to the point they're becoming indistinguishable. That's the teaching of Balaam that God's referring to. The second is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And what he's referring to there is it's probably referring to a, an offshoot of Christianity. Uh, Pastor Benny talked about this a few weeks ago. But essentially, it's uh, probably, probably the sect of Christianity that taught religious liberty. That pretty much you can do whatever you want. You can worship God, you can worship Jesus, and also um, sleep around. Right? You can worship God and worship other gods. That's totally okay. So you've got, on one hand, the teaching of, the Nicol- of, of Balaam, teaching of Balaam, which said, you know what, let's mix our faith with the so- society around us. And then you've got the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which are saying, that's okay. Go ahead and do it. Maybe I can contextualize this for us. Maybe I can say it and bring it closer to home. Right? You had Christians who would go to church on Sunday but then on Monday, be exactly, as, exactly the same as everyone around them. You could not tell they were Christian. 
You had Christians on Sunday who would lift up their hands in worship, but then on Tuesday would lie to close a big business deal. You had Christians on Sunday who would serve passionately in church, but then on Thursday would lust for things and people that didn't belong to them. You had Christians on Sunday who would profess, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, but then for the rest of the week, you would not hear the name of Jesus uttered out of their mouths unless they accidentally stubbed their toe. Right? That, does that sound familiar to any of us? Can we maybe relate? Now, I know what you may be thinking. You know, some of you might def- be defending and saying, hang on a second, but isn't believing in Jesus the most important thing? As long as I say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, isn't that enough? But listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church back then and the church today. He's asking them a critical question. Does your profession of faith match your lifestyle? What is the quality of your faith? Is it compromised? Or can I put it this way? Is your faith pure? Does the profession of your faith match your lifestyle? Maybe I can put it this way. A compromised Christianity is an ugly Christianity. A compromised Christianity is an ugly Christianity. You know, one of the most horrendous displays of Christianity that I have come across is got to be in the medieval church. Now, I'm not saying the entire medieval church was bad and disgusting, but, but, but it was not all great. <laughs> um, uh, back then, it was kind of like the Christian Game of Thrones. Like, seriously, it was that bad, okay? What would happen was the, there were power plays from popes, like popes were being elected, not for spiritual reasons, right, but purely for political ones. Wars were being, um, were being uh, started in the name of God, right? To, but not for God. It's simply to expand the reach and influence of the church. There were sex, orgies, and abuses among the church leadership. And you know what? One of the most weird things that were happening during that time was that cardinals or Christian leaders were being appointed to positions, but then they would just never show up. Like they would just go on holiday for half the year, right? You just never see them. It was a crazy time. But one of the most... One of the greatest abuses in the church during that time has got to be the sale of indulgences. Indulgences were this piece of paper, like contract, that the church gave you to say your sins are forgiven. Now, putting aside for a moment the whole theological reasons why that's a bit off, the worst part of this was that the church was selling these things. The church was was selling forgiveness of sins. So, right, what was happening, in effect, if you were rich enough, you could do whatever you want, right, do whatever you wanted to, pay the church, and your sins would be forgiven. In those times, you had even poor people spending the hard-earned money to buy forgiveness of their sins. And meanwhile, the church is raking in the cash, okay? Now, what do you think the church is using it for? To feed the poor? Nope. To, to um, build orphanages 
to provide care for the orphans and widows? Nope. They used the cash to build grand palaces, cathedrals. They used it to buy exquisite art from all across Europe to beautify their cities. They used it to fund wars halfway across the world that they call crusades in the name of their God. Let me ask you this. Does this Christianity look good to you? Does this, I, I, if you're a Christian, are you proud of this? Is, this? is this a beautiful faith to you? I don't know about you, but this is disgusting. I, I hate this image of the church. It's so far removed from, what, from my faith. I barely recognize it. And give me a moment while I plug the gospel for a moment. Because you know what? The truth is that you don't need to buy your forgiveness. It's already been bought for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 2,000 years ago, come on, he came down, suffered and died for you so that your sins could be forgiven. Once and for all, that one sacrifice was enough to forgive you of your sins. So if we sin and we all sin, all we need to do is put our faith in Christ in the sufficiency of the cross, of his death, burial, and resurrection. Repent, confess our sins, and we will be forgiven. It cost the Son of God his life to pay for your sins. And we think that we can buy it with some money? We think we can earn it by our charitable works? What an insult. It cost the Son of God his life. And we, but the good news is we can be forgiven from all our sins. Not because of anything we have done, not because of anything we can do, but because of everything that he has done for us. So the question is, what led to such a perversion, a distortion of the church? What happened? I can at least come up with three reasons why the medieval church turned out like this. One, some very bad theology. This is what can happen when you don't understand the word of God and you misapply the word of God. This is what can happen. You can make it say and mean whatever you want it to. And that's what they were doing. Two, the church had allowed the ways of society around them and the culture around them to influence them. The church had become more like a political machine than it was a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. They had mixed their faith with the world around them. And number three, the church approved every bit of it. See, this is what a compromised, diluted Christianity can look like. And isn't it ugly? Now, some of you may be thinking, but that's a very extreme version, right? <laughs> that's a very extreme version of a compromised Christianity. But make no mistake, it doesn't start out like this. It never starts out like this, right? It starts with that one lingering look at that girl or guy on that site or that ad, right? It's, it's not just a glance, right? You linger for one second, two seconds, Three seconds, you can't tear your eyes away from them, right? And I know it, and, and you might brush it off, 
And I think, well, it's no big deal. I didn't do anything. It didn't lead anywhere. I didn't really see anything. And so you downplay it. You brush it off and go, ah, it's no big deal. But that's how the seed of lust is planted in our lives. No one wakes up and just goes, you know what? I feel like an affair today. No, it doesn't start like that. It starts with that, that one lingering look that we never deal with. It starts with that belief that, you know what? Everything that I have, all the stuff that I have is for me. And if I could just have a little bit more of it, I'd be a bit happier. You know, we don't talk about this a lot, but we're surrounded, in our culture, we're surrounded by invitations to be greedy. We're surrounded by invitations, by temptations to, to, to um, cultivate, to nurture our discontent. Hey, you know what you lack? It's this new TV. If only you had this new TV, you would be that just little bit happier. But let's call it for what it is. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says this, don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater. Greed is idolatry because it is the worship of the things of this world. Every time we see that ad or we give in to that belief that, you know what, I need a bit more and it's just for me, we are actually on the verge or giving into that sin of idolatry, the worship of the things of this world. It starts with that, that a compromised Christianity starts with that subtle belief that my life is about becoming the best version of me. And God, God is all about making that happen. That's all he's there for. Now I want to be clear here. God loves you and he cares deeply about you, and he wants you to be the man and woman he created you to be. God works all things for the good of those who love him, and he loves you, right? But God is not for you. He's not for your benefit. God is for God. Closures 1 15 to 16, cannot be clear on this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Everything, everything was created through him and for him. You aren't the center of God's world. He is meant to be the center of yours. And that subtle, maybe even subconscious belief that God is all about my dreams, my visions, my plans, is really just another form of self-worship. And these kind of things, though small, they compromise our faith. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, once said this, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Is that still true 
today. The sad thing is, I can't say that it's not. Church, have we allowed our faith to become compromised? Is our faith pure? Are we single-heartedly, single-mindedly, wholeheartedly following Jesus Christ? Not just in what we say, not just in what we think we believe that, look, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe in him. I believe he existed. And I believe that he has died for my sins and he is meant to be my Lord and Savior. But is he really your Lord and Savior? Do you follow him and only him? Is your life guided by the word of God? Or have we mixed our faith? Have we compromised? A compromised Christianity is an ugly Christianity. And Jesus desires for his bride, the church, that's you and I, to be pure and beautiful. And therefore, his challenge to the church in Pergamum and the church today is this. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. Turn away from the things that are compromising your faith and submit to God's way of living. I hope you're still with me. I know that this message is maybe particularly confronting. It's not one of those messages where you leave all happy and, and encouraged that I'm, I'm great. Actually, this message is God calling his church back to himself. And it's a message that we need to hear. You know, other things that we need to repent from. I think there may be three things that we may need to repent from, right? One is sins unconfessed. Sins unconfessed. Are there sins in your life that you are entertaining, permitting, maybe downplaying the, the, the severity of it? And I'm not talking about those sins that you're actively struggling with. We all struggle and wrestle with sin. And that's understandable. That's okay, right? But I'm talking about those sins that you, you don't deal with. You know, you just become okay with it. That's just part of who you are. That's just a part of your life. In fact, you may think that's not really a big deal. But what does God say about all sin? He says to be ruthless in routing sin from your life. He says, put sin to death. Don't just starve it out. Don't just put it to one side and, and forget about it. Don't just ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. No, put sin to death. Decapitate it. Get rid of it. Do all you can to not let the devil have a foothold in your life. Maybe, church, we need to confess some sins that we've allowed to remain in our lives. The second thing maybe we need to repent from are beliefs held. Maybe there are some beliefs that you are holding that, um, that you suspect may not be entirely aligned with what God says in his word. Here's my question for us. Maybe we can reflect on this together. What is the filter that you use to discern whether something is good, true, and acceptable? What do you use as a filter? When you um, see a post on social media, when you see a clip on the news, or when you um, listen to a podcast or maybe a sermon, what 
is the filter that you use to discern whether something is good, true, and acceptable. Is it simply, well, it makes me feel good, therefore it's good, true, and acceptable? Or is it, well, that's what everyone seems to be saying is right? Or is it, that's what my friend thinks? Or this is what that pastor said is how we should live? What is the filter that you use to discern whether something is good, true, and acceptable? Is it the Word of God? Or is it something else? Maybe what we need to repent from and what we need to reflect on is where we're getting our beliefs. Where are we getting our values? Who influences what you think, what you believe, and how you act? Is it the Word of God or is it something and someone else? And I'm not saying that someone else and social media and whatever it is, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm not saying that at all. No, no, no. But what I'm saying, if that is your filter, then how do you know that's what God says? How do you know that's pleasing to God? Maybe what we need to do is repent from the fact that we are not being guided by the word of God and we need to come back to that. The third thing maybe we need to repent from is sins in our community. You notice that not everyone in the church in Pergamum had compromised their faith. There were some that had not. The question is, was God speaking to them as well when he said repent? I think so. See, the problem was not just that some Christians were mixing their faith with the culture around them, but that the rest of the church was allowing it to happen. See, while, while some Christians had failed to confront sin in their lives, others had failed to confront sin in their community. See, on one hand, you had a sin issue, and on the other hand, you had a discipleship issue. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, is a popular verse. It says this, And let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works. And we use this verse often to, as an encouragement and as a basis for us meeting together regularly. And so my question to us today is, when we meet together for church or when we meet together for our small groups, is this happening? Are we stirring one another up to love and good deeds? Or are we just gathering together to chat, have fun, just eat together and catch up on our week? Or are we being intentional? Intentional about um, seeing one another pursue Christ more faithfully and serve him more passionately. Now, I'm not saying here, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that we should go on a witch hunt and start accusing people of sin, like you for sure, the glory of God, oh, you've got this sin in your life, how dare you be here, you know, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that at all, right? That would be a very stressful, unloving community to be in. But what I'm saying is, is there maybe any space in our discipleship communities where we are able to lovingly, lovingly encourage, challenge, hey, maybe even rebuke one another in love so that our faith is refined, so that we become more Christ-like. Is there any space at all in our discipleship communities where we meet together, where we are coming around one another and going, hey, this is what God says. Are we doing it? 
Are we living it out? And to come around one another and support one another and pray for one another and go, hey, let's serve God faithfully. Let's pursue Him more faithfully. And are there things in our lives that are stopping us from doing that? Are we having those conversations? Are those moments happening at all in our discipleship communities? If not, then why are we meeting? What was the point of the church? To stir one another up, to love and good deeds. Maybe, just maybe, as a church, as a community, this is something we need to repent from. And we've got to take this seriously because um, Jesus, the, this challenge Jesus gives to the church in Pergamum comes with a warning. And the warning is this in verse 16. If not, I'm going to come to you soon and war against them with a sword out of my mouth. The warning is essentially this. I'm going to come to you soon. I'm going to come to you soon. And this Jesus that is described here is the one with the double-edged sword. You find this imagery in Revelation 19. Uh, I'm just going to summarize it here, but I believe it's on the screen as well. This Jesus is described as with eyes of blazing fire. His, on his head are many crowns, many crowns. His robe is dipped in blood and his title is the Word of God. He commands the armies of heaven. They are in his wake. He leads them and from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down, down the nations. Now I know the image of Jesus that we usually think of when we think of Jesus is one when he's, that, that he's, on, when he's on earth, right? In the Gospels, where he's healing the sick, he's hugging little children, where he's eating with sinners, when he's dying on the cross. But make no mistake, the same Jesus is this conquering king who's coming with the armies of heaven, with a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And this Jesus who died for them and is a conquering king is saying, if you don't repent, I'm coming to you soon. I'm coming to you soon. Now, can I say with confidence that, well, if you don't repent, Jesus is coming to you soon? Well, I can't exactly say that because that was specific to the church in Pergamon. But what I can say is that Jesus says, well, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Therefore, be alert. Don't think that you can fluff around. Don't think that you can flirt with sin and get away with it. Otherwise, to you, I may be like a thief in the night, coming when you least expect it. You may not even be ready. You may be sleeping while, when I come. Therefore, church, he wants to, I believe today, he wants to wake up the church to repentance. Church, maybe we need to repent. And he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come to you soon and I'm going to fight against them. Not with them, uh, against them with the sword of my mouth. And I don't know about you, but that's absolutely terrifying. But thank God, he doesn't end there. And I'm about to end, so hang with me here. Thankfully, he does not end there. He says, he ends this letter to the church in Pergamum with a reward. He says, but, but to those who overcome, to those who conquer, I will give some of the hidden manna and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
There's many layers to this, these three verses, but essentially it's this. Jesus is giving them a promise to those who persevere in trials, to those who overcome the temptation of this world to be like it, to those who put to death sin in their lives and pursue Christ. He promises to give them sustenance and assurance. I'm going to go through this really quickly because we're running out of time. He promises us the hidden manna. This hidden manna is referring to himself. Jesus, when he was on earth, he said, I am the bread of life. What Jesus is saying is to the one who overcomes, to the one who follows me, you have me. I give you myself. And in Christ, we have life and life to the full. Life that is truly satisfying, truly fulfilling. We have life. And this life doesn't end when we die. No, when we pass on from this life to the next, we just go from partially experiencing life with Jesus to fully experiencing life with Jesus. This is the hidden manner that he offers to us. Secondly, he offers us assurance. That's the white stone. This could refer to two things, right? And I believe it refers to both of them. One, in those times, judges would vote for a person's innocence with a white stone and their guilt with a black stone. And Jesus is saying to you who overcome, I give you the white stone. There's no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. Amen. You are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. It also could mean that um, a, a, a ticket of admission. In those days, a white stone was a ticket of admission to a feast or banquet. And we know that to all those who persevere in Christ, who follow him faithfully, we will enter heaven celebrating. The promise is that we're going to enter heaven into what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to enter into a great feast celebrating with Him. And Jesus is saying, this is the white stone I give to you. And this new name that's written on it, this is the new identity that you have in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. You are new creation. I give you a new identity in Him. And as we journey with Christ, we learn just how expansive this new identity in Him is. You are not worthless. You are worthy in His sight. You are not dead. He gives you a new name, alive. You're not guilty. You are justified. You are innocent. You are righteous. Maybe you have been an angry person in your past life, but in Christ, He makes you loving. Maybe you struggle with stinginess, but in Him, you are generous. Maybe you struggle with anxiety, but in Christ, He gives you a new identity. You will be full of peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Isn't this amazing? This is a promise that Jesus gives to those of us who repent and follow Him fully. May we be disciples of Jesus who don't simply say a prayer and think we're okay or go to church every once in a while, but may we be disciples that obey what He says. They are the ones who choose on a daily basis to deny themselves pick up the cross and follow Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And I just want to end today um, by giving you an opportunity that if you don't know Jesus, but you, today 
there's something that's stirring in you that says, you know what, I believe that. Even though that's a hard message to listen to, I actually believe that. I believe that. And I want to put my faith in this Jesus who has died for me, who has saved me. And if I believe in him, and if I say, and if I follow him, he will give me himself, true life, and life abundantly that never ends. He'll give me a new identity. If that is you, I want you to join me in a prayer. I want you to join me in prayer, okay? Let me pray for us. Say this with me, wherever you're seated, wherever you are, say with me, pray with me. Dear God, thank you for your love for me. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die for my sin on the cross. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your life for me. I come to you today. I open my heart to you. Please come into my life right now. I confess that I am a sinner and my life is full of sin. But thank you for forgiving me of all my sins. From this day on, help me to know you, to follow you, and to obey you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.